Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish on First podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the founder of Fish on First, covering your Marlins every single day. There's something going on here, and we're bringing it to you unlike anybody else. I am uh, recording the show a little bit earlier than usual, releasing it a little bit earlier than usual in advance of full squad reporting to Marlins camp in Jupiter. It also happens to be on the one-month anniversary us unveiling the new version of our site at fishonfirst.com. We put it up on January 19th. That's when we can finish the finish the migration. Now, February 19th, we're finally getting a, a really good feel for what we want to do here and how we think it could bring Marlins fans incredible value and incredible attention. Uh, this episode is going to focus on the 2024 Marlins payroll, always a spicy topic. And speaking of pay, you can support what we do here on Fish on First as a super subscriber. The spring training under, under underway and with us having people on site for every single day of Marlins camp, thought it was a good idea to put together a Marlins spring training journal where our latest updates are available to the public on this page, fishonfirst.com. But all previous days, exclusive for super subs, if they want to scroll back and see what we saw and understand what we reported throughout camp to really have your finger on exactly what this team is shaping up to be entering opening day. As little as $4 a month for you to become a super sub, try to bring you value in as many ways as possible, including through this spring training journal, including through giveaways. Just got confirmation that our January giveaway winner of the Yuri Perez jersey. He received it. And you'll have an opportunity for other super sub exclusive giveaways when you sign up. Fishonfirst.com slash subscriptions. But let's talk about this Marlins payroll. An important topic every single year for this Marlins team. They have to be efficient with the way that they spend things. But in my opinion, I think in the opinion of most other folks, they also need to be accountable to their constituents in terms of how they use the revenue that they earn as well as the revenue that they receive from larger market teams. That is a big element of Major League Baseball, ensuring that every franchise is not only profitable, but extremely so. The Marlins under Bruce Sherman, people were curious exactly how their spending habits would change with the change in ownership. And now this is going to be believe it or not, the seventh season under Bruce Sherman's oversight for the Marlins. And their spending habits have been a little peculiar. Some would say um, a little underwhelming, all things considered. And we're going to dive into it. There's a lot of different ways that you could go about calculating payroll. Um, you can spend a whole lot of time 
tossing and turning over particular numbers to get it right. Most importantly, I just want to be fair, consistent, and somewhat enlightening on this. So there are several resources that I go to in order to get a, a, good, a clear idea of what the total spending for the Marlins is going to be, such as roster resource on fan graphs. There's Cots baseball contracts, part of baseball prospectus, and there's Spo track. And I take little elements of, of what they do. I, there are a lot of costs associated with running a major league franchise. I should say a, lot, a wide variety of different ways that they have to spend money to keep things together. There are, are hundreds of either full-time or part-time employees outside of the players that are part of keeping this team going and sustainable and uh, to keep it up to the standard it needs to be for a major league franchise. Those people need to be paid, especially those in the front office. This Marlins offseason, the biggest acquisitions almost by any measure have been off the field and the Marlins have added new folks to their brain trust We'll get into them in the second half of this episode. Those people command certain salaries as well. There are, even outside of the 40-man roster, there are over 100 minor leaguers in this organization that, at least during the season, they get paid. And they get paid more than they have historically. They get an in-season salary. Marlins have to are responsible for that. They have to pay bonuses to draft picks and international signings to acquire them in the first place. Millions of dollars involved both internationally and through the draft every single year. Even so, vast majority of the expense is the major league players themselves. What I like to do is put together a projection of what it's going to cost to fill out this opening day active roster, 26 players, as well as others who were under contract entering 2024 of some kind or who are going to be going on the injured list. When you are on the IL, as long as it's the major league IL, you still get every cent of what you would have been owed ordinarily under the assumption that you got injured playing baseball or preparing to play baseball. That's how it works. One by one, we start with the guys on that are have guaranteed salaries that have already been confirmed, either through arbitration negotiations or as free agent signings, pre-existing extensions, etc. In descending order, we start off with Josh Bell, opted into his deal for 2024, took $16.5 million guaranteed rather than take his chances in the open market. Avasail Garcia, $12 million for him. Luis Arise, fresh off losing his arbitration case against the Marlins, $10.6 million. The rehabbing Sandy Alcantara, $9.3 million as part of his extension that he signed years ago. He'll still get that money. The highest paid healthy play pitcher, I should say, on the Marlins, Tanner Scott. He won his arbitration case against the Marlins, gets $5.7 million. Jesus Lazardo, $5.5 million. John Birdie, $3.625 million. We have a couple of players here that are not going to be on the Marlins and as of this moment are not on any roster for 2024, but may attempt to get on there. Matt Barnes and Johnny Cueto. Both of them had 2024 club options that the Marlins declined after the World Series. Uh, so instead of paying Barnes would have been something like $9 million and Cueto about 10 they'll get a fraction of that as part of a buyout. Matt Barnes, a $2.7 million, $7.5 million buyout. Johnny Cueto, $2.5 million. I count that as part of the 2024 payroll. It, you can't really count it as 2023 if it gets agreed to after the season. 
So regardless of when exactly those checks hit their accounts, that is part of the expense of running the team moving forward. And that's less than it would have been if they had picked up those options. So that is still a piece of the puzzle. Combine those two 5.25 million in buyouts for the Marlins. Jazz Chisholm Jr. went to an arbitration hearing, lost it, gets 2.625 million this upcoming season. Jesus Sanchez, 2.1. Christian Benfincourt, 2.05. AJ Puck, 1.8. Trevor Rogers, 1.53. JT Chagua, 1.285. Nick Gordon, he went to an arbitration hearing against his former team, the Twins. He lost, gets traded to the Marlins. The Marlins actually save a little bit money overall in that transaction because Stephen Okert was due to make over a million bucks. Instead, they have Gordon here at 900K and Anthony Bender at 770K. With this exercise being filling out this opening day roster, you have two guys here that are bought out, not with the organization. You have one who is with the organization in spirit but it's not going to be on the active roster this year, Sandy Alcantara. And that leaves 14 others that are penciled in for opening day roster spots. You could say more than penciled in. They are uh, close to locked in, especially on the lower, the bottom half of those names I just mentioned. Most of those guys have minor league options remaining, which means they could be sent down. If the Marlins feel in camp that somebody else, frankly, deserves a spot better more than they do if they're being sent down to work on something in particular, like it's a pitcher who's getting stretched out as a starter. I think it's possible that some of those guys get beat out for jobs flat up. And it's also possible that some of those guys get injured during the course of camp. I'll touch back on that in in a couple minutes, but at least 14 guys here that we expect to be on the opening day roster, that leaves 12 more spots for the 26 men. And those players as current, as of this recording, those 12 would all be pre-arbitration eligible players. Everybody from Braxton Garrett, who just missed qualifying for arbitration, to those that have gotten just a small taste of big league action, like uh, Jacob Amaya, Xavier Edwards. Uh, So those players are all going to earn very similar salaries close to the league minimum. For 2024, the league minimum salary is $740,000. It goes up a little bit each year as negotiated in the collective bargaining agreements. Looking at last year, the Marlins, just like just about every other team, they have a system where they usually give these guys a little bit more than the minimum itself. Like the minimum or prorated version of that minimum goes to the, um, when when you desperately need a, a player from the minors, a fresh arm, for example, somebody really temporary. Um, most of those guys will get when they get called up very briefly, they, uh, they get as little as possible for the time that they're in the big leagues. But at any one time, you have these 12 roster spots where at the absolute minimum, they're going to be making 740000 over the course of the season. In the last year, on average, Marlins are paying these guys 13300 above that minimum. They were giving them a little bit more on average. And this is all just a rounding error in the big scheme of things. Just to make this estimate as close as possible, I use that precedent that for these pre-arb spots, on average, these guys will be making 13300 above the league minimum. So in this case, it's 740 k plus that 13.3K, and you get 753300 each. Multiply it by 12, and that's an additional 9040000 in this projection. If you add up all the 
guaranteed numbers above, and then you have to fill in the roster with these final 12 guys, you get a projection for 2024 of $90,575,000 for the Marlins opening day projection. Now, going back to the injury front, this is accounting for Sandy being on the IL. Historically, almost every time, there's somebody else during the course of spring training that suffers, if not a real injury, then is you know, simply behind, so won't be ready for game action at the end of camp, and has to be placed on the IL, uh, even if it's only for a short period of time. And if that happens, then that leads you with an, another open spot or multiple open spots that you also have to fill with at least those pre-arb players. So this projection could go up. I would lean towards it likely going up, whether the injuries happen, whether they finally pull the trigger on a major league free agent signing. I've decided in recording this now, I'm not going to hold my breath with that anymore, even though the team is poking around, having negotiations, seeing if they can get anybody at a price that they're comfortable with. But for the moment, it's at $90.575 million. Now, why is that notable? Because if you look at the precedent that this team has set last year, expectations not particularly high for the team, and yet that opening day payroll was $92.575 million, exactly $2 million above what I'm currently projecting. They're coming off a postseason berth, their first in a full season, with fans in attendance for those games in 20 years, and yet... They come out of it on the other side, entering a new year at a time where Major League Baseball itself is thriving from a revenue standpoint, where that projection all has gone down. They're spending even less after being the 23rd ranked team in payroll last year. They could be even lower than that. Yeah, it's time to dive into that a little more and the complicated the rationale the team might have about this and, and how I think fans should be absorbing this type of information. Stick with me. Back here on the official show, looking at and trying to make sense of this payroll projection and why the Marlins are spending relatively so little on their major league team coming off one of the better regular seasons in franchise history. So the one place that I referenced earlier where you also spend money in a way that's not accounted for in a payroll projection is by adding to the front office. So the Marlins have made a lot of changes to their front office. As, as you noted, as you have noticed, no doubt Kim Ang in October parting ways with the team mutual option. She, she declined her part of it after the Marlins made it evidently clear that they were not sold on the way that she was running the front office and said, Bring in Peter Bendix as the new president of baseball operations. If you're watching on YouTube, you see this entire list and everybody's title. There's Gabe Kapler as assistant GM, Rachel Balkovich as the director of player development, on and on. We probably don't even have the complete list yet. There could be even more added between now and the start of the 2024 season. And these these people cost money. Um they, you know, the Marlins do have to spend something to bring them in. With Bendix, I I would say with a high degree of confidence that he's earning in the seven figures annually to be the Pobo of this team uh, with Gabe Kapler. That's an interesting one because he was fired from the giants with time remaining on his contract. They continue. They still owe him all that money. They 
that was due to him. And uh, I'm a little bit hazy on whether he's allowed to double dip and collect his full managerial salary and something from a different position. I think he might be. At the same time, that gave the Marlins certainly quite a bit of leverage in bringing him in. The fact that he already was being compensated for this coming year. I would imagine that played a part in it as well. With most of these other people, like Balkovich, Vinish, Confin, uh, Frankie Pilieri, and on and on. Like most of these hirees are taking jobs that are either, you know, promotions over what they've previously done or just new positions as well. I would imagine the, the team has quite a bit of leverage there in terms of the compensation that's involved with that. If you're being brought in to do a job um, that is more substantial, influential than something you've done before, um, those, those people you, you would think would come in at a lower salary relative to other people that are also doing that job elsewhere around Major League Baseball, right? If you have, if you're a longtime director of player development for a certain team, or if, yeah, if you've been running an amateur scouting de department for a Major League team for a decade or more, like you'd think those people with other Major League teams that have more continuity there and proof of, proof of a concept would be likely earning more than what the Marlins are. So I, I just, I don't think this is really a, a huge piece of the pie. Also considering that there have been some departures as well. You know, even the front office has expanded overall, but there have been some other employees that were previously under Kim Eng's purview that left along with her, um, either by, by choice or by force one way or another. When you look at the net expense, all things considered, with the front office changes, it's it's kind of a rounding error, maybe a little bit more. We'll, we'll see exactly what special projects they, they put together, what other expenses are involved with what they need to do, what they plan to do to transform the player development operation, make it more efficient, What yeah, how they utilize technology and information to make players better, hopefully, in a way that they couldn't under the previous front office. Uh, yeah, this this to me is not really a substantial explanation for this just because of all the revenue that is coming in for this Marlins team. Aside from the Major League Baseball revenue, you may have noticed, especially if you follow our coverage at Fish on First, they hosted the Caribbean Series at Lone Depot Park um, this past a few weeks ago. It started on February 1st and went through February 9th. 25 games of international competition at Lone Depot Park hosted by the Marlins and the Marlins absolutely benefited from this, from drawing in over the course of these 50, uh, 25 games, they had more than 300,000 paid tickets for these games that they sold. Like these were sold by the Marlins. The, the particulars of the revenue split between them and the Caribbean baseball federation. I, I can't speak to exactly what those were, they did set a record in the final for Caribbean series record. And that broke a record that they'd set a few days earlier for a, a, a game during the round Robin stage of the tournament. This was a big success in terms of attendance. And that doesn't even account for all the other miscellaneous things that may have been sold at the ballpark during the course of these games, the money collected for parking as well. Um, as you guys know, it is, sometimes a little bit complicated to get to games unless you drive there yourself and park there yourself. So this was 
undoubtedly a big piece of revenue that the Marlins get that no other major league team gets. There's one Caribbean series uh, per year, and this is the only one ever that was hosted in a active major league ballpark. So that's part of the equation uh, for this team that a lot of money that went straight to the team on top of the people attending at Lone Depot Park, the Marlins negotiated an interesting arrangement with the series where they have now the, had the control of the broadcasting rights. So they struck independent deals with ESPN plus and ESPN Deportes to cover in Spanish. And then with Bally sports, to broadcast games locally in English, as well as some of those were actually also shared outside of the local market as well. So there's that element to it as well. The having those broadcasting rights that paid off now. And I believe they also have those broadcasting rights in place for future seasons, even though the series itself might not come back to Miami for several more years. Uh, the Marlins were the ones that were the middleman in negotiating those broadcast rights um, to be covered in when the event is played next February and the one after that and the one after that. There'll be benefits from that as well. So that was, I think there's a lot of positivity that this was a good idea to bring the event to the ballpark. Like, yeah, this was a cool thing. And ultimately the Marlins did it because there's money involved with it. Not that far down the road. There's another world baseball classic coming up in, in two years. There's a lot of confidence that the Marlins will host some games of that. And with that comes even more interesting creative revenue that they're bringing in uh, at various points this offseason and last year there was some concerns about what exactly was happening with the local broadcast model through bally and whether that entire network might actually come crashing down through bankruptcy after those proceedings have been going on for the better part of the year and even though that situation is still kind of fluid at least for this upcoming season, Marlins are getting everything that they negotiated in terms of local TV rights. We're only a few years into the Marlins striking a new big extension and increase in their local broadcast rights compared to what they had historically owned as well. So that's even that's still coming in pretty well and pretty close to what the Marlins had originally forecasted when Bruce Sherman and company bought the team. That was, that was a huge element. If you remember far back enough was being able to settle their future local TV situation and get a lot more for, for it than what was under their previous deal. Previously they had the lowest local TV revenue in baseball and now they're still pretty close to the bottom, but not quite all the way at the bottom, the way that they used to be. And on top of all this, there's the revenue sharing. There's the fact that Major League Baseball, even during the moments where there are some negative indicators about the average age of the audience and the draw that national baseball games bring and the lack of draw that they bring, overall, there's still more money coming into the sport than ever before. The broadcast deals that they have nationally are extremely lucrative and it's reflected in the way that players get paid by other teams, not named the Marlins. The fact that there are always new salary records being broken. Also living in a time in the United States, as you have noticed, where there's been inflation pretty steadily over the last several years. If, if we go back to this track record of 
Marlins payroll during the Bruce Sherman era, actually starting with the final year, the Loria era. That opening day payroll was $115 million estimated in 2017. That was only the 20th highest payroll. So even at the end of Loria's era, um, that was when he, at that time, they put together a team that had a lot of veteran players that were, by his standards, that was a pretty expensive team. They were 20th in payroll entering that year. When Sherman inherited some lousy contracts in 2018, he traded, he dumped some money away, but he's also stuck with some bad deals entering 2018. That opening day payroll was just a shade under $100 million. That ranked 23rd in baseball. And usually this number does go up during the course of the season when we're focusing on opening day payroll because injuries do pile up. And, uh, and usually you're just paying more different players over the course of the season than you were originally entering the season due to those injuries. Uh, yeah, aside from 2018, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see the trend that the year-end total payment um, is almost always higher than the initial opening day projection. Outside of 2018, once they entered that following year and had almost all their bad contracts off the books, the Marlins were 29th in opening day payroll, payroll then 27th, then 28th, then 26th. And last year, 23. And they have so many reasons to build off of that, right? Because of the performance of the team, the fact that they had more people attending the ballpark. They boasted quite a bit about that last year, didn't the Marlins? About how they were bringing in more fans than in, in recent history. This is a table of the attendance during the Bruce Sherman era. Obviously, in 2020, they didn't bring in anybody. Things were pretty flat in 2018 and 2019. Only about 10,000 paying tickets uh, per game. But back in 2022, that ticked up a little bit once things fully opened post-COVID. And then last year, going well over the 1 million mark, averaging right around 14,000 per game over the course of the season. And where does that, what does that do? Where is that being reflected in this team? From year to year, last year, 900 well in 2022 bring in barely 900,000 fans in 2023 bring in 1.16 million that's a difference of about a quarter million paying customers from one season to the next and yet the payroll that they're starting off with has not changed whatsoever so what is the excuse here um the team's contention I'll be eager to hear what it is that Bruce Sherman says and Peter Bendix says when they speak with the media on the day that full squad workouts begin on Tuesday. I'm intentionally releasing this ahead of time because I, I don't want their, I suspect that their comments won't really shed a whole lot of light on this. And I don't want them to misconstrue what is really happening here. And what's really happening is that they're spending less on the major league team than they were a year ago despite what was, by so many measures, a successful year for this Marlins team on the field in terms of bringing in people to see their games, in terms of creating revenue outside of the Miami Marlins through international events, and also by continuing to benefit from being associated with Major League Baseball at a time where there's so much other revenue being earned at a league level that is being distributed to this team 
like this, it's not always about signing the most expensive player to players in order to put together the best team. I mean, the Marlins have some very obvious examples of that in their recent history, including on their roster right now. Some of their most expensive players are not their most valuable ones. At the same time, this the question is, where is this money going if if it's not really being put into the team? And the question is, you know, are they actually earning less from the local attendance and from their local efforts and they should, are they failing to capitalize on the elevated interest in their team that's happening in South Florida, or are they simply pocketing more of the money and um, looking and, you know, still trying to put together a competitive team, but under these self-imposed restraints. Um, and we can't really get a definitive answer to that. I, I just think this is notable. And in case you weren't noticing and realizing this is happening, um, that's why I went through the effort to put together the projection and provide some context behind it. I'll reiterate this off season. It's not over yet. It's moving incredibly slow. There are still literally dozens of free agents that are going to be getting major league deals. Maybe one or two or three get it from the Marlins, but there is a possibility that they don't get anything done. And then, you know, they go to camp with what they have a team that is projected by Fangraphs and by Pakoda at the moment for right around 80 wins. So that would still be better than most seasons in Marlins history, but that would be a step back from where they were last year. So like, I think this has to be the reason why you go through with this is they're at it. I think a lot of people will accept that they're right around that middle area in that gray middle between you know, being below 500 and potentially sneaking into the playoffs like they did last year. This is an area where every incremental win that you think you can bring in has a lot of value because there is a huge difference in perception of your franchise. If you win 79 games versus whether you win 85 and are able to get into the wild card, um, Peter Bendix has, this is something that I kind of agree with Bendix about, how the objective over the course of his tenure as Pobo is going to be to maximize the number of postseason births that the Marlins make. If you just get in, anything can happen. Last year was a good example of that with the Arizona Diamondbacks going all the way to the World Series. Um, it really is a crapshoot once you get into the postseason. So getting into the postseason is immensely valuable on its own. Making the small changes potentially could be the difference in missing out and just getting in, you'd think though that's worth investing in and it's worth rolling the dice on that, especially when you're, you're in a moment in history where things are still pretty good. You know, the future of Major League Baseball, um, following the Rob Manfred era, which he told us is coming to an end five years from now, you know, long-term, there's still a lot of questions that you have to deal with from a business perspective. Um, but for the time being, they're in really good shape and you shouldn't let anything else convince you otherwise that this team should be doing more. You know, there are using, I should show one final item as a uh, projected by Spotrek. This is uh, still, you know, incomplete. Um, I don't have my finger on the pulse of every other team's outstanding money. This is their calculation, excluding the pre-arb players that the Marlins have the 81 and a half million that among the 
guys that are under guaranteed deals that are already locked into place. As currently constituted, they are 28th in the committed payroll that they have for their uh, veteran players. Aside from the Pirates and the Oakland A's, that, that's it. That's the bottom of the league. They're 28th out of 30 in the money they have committed to those veteran players. In the league average, by this calculation, they're at $81.5 million, the Marlins. The league average, by this payroll calculation, is $147 million. It, it just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the Marlins are, are this far removed from the, the rest of the league when they are in this moment, you know, they still have this decent team together. They still have some star player, star power in place. It'd be a little bit more defensible if they had taken steps to make long-term commitments to some of these players, but that is kind of where this all compounds and where I think the direction of this team looks really muddled right now where, you know, they've invested in front office people that have this long-term vision and, you know, we'll watch that play out and see whether or not they have some of the solutions to why it is this team has struggled with developing its own talent and, and all that, you know, putting something in place where it's easy for you to simply replace the production as players get more expensive, that you always have next waves of talent. That's what the Rays do well. That is understandably a, an, a good objective to have as an organization is wanting to optimize that. It's just there is a balance here especially in the immediate term for this 2024 season. Like it's not realistic to think this thing doesn't have great depth based on what they inherited from the previous regime. And you'd like to see them spend a little bit more in order to give this team a chance to be good in 2024 and actually improve upon what they had. You know, the, the most generous interpretation that I've seen go around that is plausible is that this team is just as good as last year's. That they'll be able to, yeah, that they'll be able to score just as many runs, if not a few more runs, that they'll be able to still prevent runs at a reasonably high level. That's possible. It's just you need you would like to see them aspire for more, considering how little this franchise has accomplished historically, what this franchise what these fans have been through, and just the reality that it, it seems like things are going really well on the business side to justify a greater investment in the 2024 season. Yeah, so you can check out uh, these numbers laid out in more detail on our site, fishonfirst.com, and we'll continue to keep you abreast of all these rumors of potential signings that could kind of change the math behind this a little bit. I just think the um, overall, we have this pretty clear picture coming together about this team, um, about where they are, and it's, you know, it's really hard to totally see exactly what the, the vision is other than being a little bit frugal in the short term and looking out beyond this uh, 2024 season. And it, yeah, it'll be, it could come back to bite them is what I'll finish off by saying that making a few incremental moves and you know, putting more of your resources back into the team, that could be the difference between having an irrelevant season and having one that is just good enough to keep them in the race all season long and potentially set up for a surprisingly fun October run. So I've been Eli Sussman fish on first, the official show coming at you mostly on Tuesday mornings throughout the entire year with myself, staffers, special guests, etc. 
We appreciate the support. Find the pod wherever you get your pods by looking up Fish on First. Ratings and reviews, greatly appreciated. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a like on this, share it around, and we'll be back for more. Um, by the time this next episode goes out, there'll be actual spring training games to cover um, and react to and overreact to. So I absolutely can't wait. This is one that really gets fun. Thanks for sticking around through um, what's what's been kind of a a, a dud of a off season in terms of content. This is where the fun begins, and I am really curious to see exactly how it goes for this team. Go fish. Go fish.